Good morning again. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 20 through 31. That'll be our sermon text for this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be plenty of Bibles on the tables just outside those doors, so feel free to, to grab one. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free not only to grab one of those for the service, but uh, write your name in the front of it, take it home with you, keep it, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we read Galatians uh, 4, uh, let's, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come, we come to you uh, right now. We come to hear from you. We come to be refreshed by your grace. Uh, we come to hear again the gospel, that we would be renewed in it, challenged to believe it and to rest in it and to live in light of it. Uh, we come uh, praying for your Holy Spirit to be at work in our hearts, uh, that he would renew us and uh, give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, uh, that your word would be meaningful to us and that it would uh, take deep root in our hearts. Uh, Father, we pray that you would do that by your power, by your might. I can't do that. We can't do that. Uh, only you can take your word and uh, plant it deep in our hearts. We pray that you would do that this morning, that you would do it right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 4, beginning with verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband." Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Do you consider yourself to be religious? You know, it's common today to say, I'm spiritual but not religious. Uh, that's true among Christians and non-Christians alike, right? We, we want to maintain connection with something supernatural, something spiritual. But religion is seen as stifling with its rules and rituals, maybe even hypocritical. And typically when we say we're, we're not religious, we mean we're not a part of an organized religion. Uh, organized religion is bad, we think, and uh, free-spirited spirituality is good. 
religion is seen as an, as an unqualified bad often. And uh, maybe uh, it's obvious, but I don't think that's true. But neither is the opposite true. Right? Religion is not an unqualified good either. To be religious is not enough. To be religious, uh, to hold uh, certain beliefs, and, and is to hold certain beliefs and practices in common with other people. You know, to believe Christian doctrine, to, to accept Christian teaching about God, about the world, about humanity, about Jesus, uh, to come to church, right? To be a member of a church, to read your Bible, to pray, right? To live a moral life. To be religious is not enough. The reason that's the case is not because you need religion plus, right? Religion and something else. Uh, but because there are two completely opposite ways of being religious. That's what we're going to look at this morning, these two uh, different ways of being religious. Uh, You can see the outline on the back of your bulletin. We're going to look at the, the power of these two religions, the character of these two religions, the fruit of these two religions, and the end of these two religions. There are two different ways of being religious. Uh, Before we jump in, though, I want us to look at verses 20 and 21. In verse 20, uh, Paul says, "I, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. And Paul, uh, on some level, doesn't understand what the Galatians are thinking, but he he tells us what's so confusing in verse 21, which is why I've included verse 20 with our text this morning. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law... Do you not listen to the law? To be under the law uh, is is not merely to obey it. Um, There's nothing wrong with obeying the law in itself. Uh, But to be under the law means two things here. It means on the one hand to be be under the law is to look to the law to make you a good person. Uh, It's it's to think that if I follow the rules, then I'll have it all together as if the law can change me. And to be under the law also means to look to the law for your standing with God. If I do these things, if I keep these rules, if I obey uh, these laws, then God will love me, we sometimes think. So to be under the law is to look to the law to, to make you into a good person and to cause God to love you. Paul says, you want to be under this thing. Uh, have you actually listened to it? Right? Uh, we ask this kind of question all the time, right? When uh, someone all excited tells us their plans for the future, and uh, if we think it's a bad idea especially, we might respond, well, wait a minute, I'm confused. Um, do you really know what you're getting into? Have you thought this thing through? Right? Have you actually listened to the law? And uh, then Paul begins to tell a story. It's the story of Abraham. Uh, notice for Paul here, uh, the law means the book of Genesis, uh, that's not the way we normally mean, uh, not what we normally mean by the law, but by law here, Paul means uh, the Torah, the five books of Moses. So he means the, the whole first five books of the Bible, at least. And, and so Paul tells a story from Genesis about Abraham's two sons. This story is important because uh, one of the lies that the Galatians were being told was that if you want God's blessing, you must become a child of Abraham. Actually, that part's true, right? God made his promises to Abraham. All of God's promises come to Abraham and his children. But the Galatians were taught that become, to become a child, 
uh, you must keep the law. You become a child of Abraham through keeping the law, through circumcision and law obedience. So what Paul is going to say is, yes, yes, it's true. You must become a child of Abraham. God made his promises to Abraham, and we only receive them if we are Abraham's children. But there are actually two different ways of being a child of Abraham. Or as I put it a moment ago, two different ways of being religious. So first let's look at the power of these two religions. Performance versus promise. Now I know, I know, uh, this was kind of one of the points from last week. Uh, It's true, but Paul continues to make the same argument, so we need to continue to take notice of it. Uh, And Paul puts it in a new new way this week, uh, I think in a way that captures it better than Uh, maybe better than anything he said before, makes it a little more tangible for us. Paul tells a story from Genesis. Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. And Ishmael and Isaac were born in two significantly different ways, or actually they were conceived in two significantly different ways. You know, Abraham and Sarah had tried to have children for years When Abraham and Sarah first moved to Canaan, uh, they had no children. Abraham was 75, and Sarah was about 65. God promised them descendants at that time, as numerous as the stars in heaven, and 10 years later, still no babies. Now, assuming Abraham and Sarah got married in their 20s, that means they had been without kids for 50-plus years. And for the last 10 They've had a promise from God of numerous descendants, but still no babies. Now, if you've ever tried to have children and been unable, or even if you know someone who has tried to have children and been unable, you know how, how difficult that is, right? How, how trying, how hard that is. And so 50 years into barrenness, right? Not five, but 50 years into barrenness, 10 years into God's promise of numerous descendants, Sarah hatches a plan. She tells Abraham to sleep with her handmaid, Hagar. That may seem really odd to us. Uh, it maybe wasn't quite so unusual in the ancient world, though it still wasn't right. But it was, it was their version of surrogate motherhood. And Abraham uh, sleeps with Hagar, and Ishmael is born. Then 15 years later, when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is about 90, God enables Sarah to bear a child, and Isaac is born. Abraham has two sons. And notice what Paul says about these two sons in verse 23 of Galatians 4. He says, But the son of the slave woman... But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, both boys were born in the natural way, you know, the birds and the bees and all that. But Ishmael was born according to the flesh. Abraham and Sarah looked at the situation. They looked at God's promises. They asked, how can we bring this about? How can we, in our strength, get a child? So Hagar is their method to get a son in their strength. Then there was Isaac. Abraham and Sarah clearly were unable to have children. Ten years of marriage went by, 20 years of marriage went by, 30 years of marriage went by, 40 years went by. Then comes God's promise. Then another 10 years pass. 
Now we're up to 50, right? Then 60 years pass. Then 65 years pass. What was the point of this long, drawn-out emptiness in Abraham and particularly Sarah's life? I think, I think the very point was this, that all of their human effort uh, was empty, powerless, in vain. The very thing Hagar represented, right, their effort to get a child in their strength, that self-reliant streak, that was the very thing God was trying to break them of. God wants us to know that his promises are brought about by his power, by his grace, not because we've worked hard enough, not because we've earned it. So God brings his, his promise about specifically by his spirit. Uh, he points that out in verse 29, actually. Um, Ishmael, again, is born according to the flesh in verse 29. Isaac, we're told, is born according to the spirit. It's not that there was a, a virgin birth or, or miraculous birth in that sense, but that God's spirit caused Abraham and Sarah to conceive despite their human inability. Why is God's promise to Abraham so powerful? Because God's spirit moves to fulfill God's promises. And this was just as true with Jerusalem. Okay, now that seems like an odd leap for us, right, to go from Sarah to Jerusalem. It maybe wasn't such an odd leap for them. Often in Scripture, cities are referred to as women, and the city's inhabitants are talked about as, as uh, the woman's children. In a sense, the city stands for the nation as a whole, as opposed to the individual that makes up the nation. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, God calls out to Jerusalem after the exile and says that her sons have fainted, uh, they've been captured like antelopes in a net. Jerusalem's destruction by Babylon Isaiah says, is like a woman whose sons or whose children have all been captured for the kill. And yet when God finally promises restoration in the book of Isaiah, he uses this similar kind of imagery. Isaiah 54, this is what Paul quotes in verse 27. Isaiah 54 says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. What's God's point? What's he saying? He's saying, you, Israel, in this case, because of your sin, you've been taken into exile. Your cities have been destroyed. Your sons, your inhabitants have been uh, exiled or killed. You are like a barren woman who has no husband, someone who is completely powerless to have children to protect herself with no future or no hope in that society. But God says, I am going to restore you. I am going to uh, give you children once more. I'm going to repopulate your cities. I'm going to repopulate your nation to make you great again. Only God can make a nation great again, right? Um, Isaiah, though, thank you for chuckling. Uh, Isaiah goes on. Isaiah goes on, Paul doesn't quote the whole passage, Isaiah goes on and says, uh, Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. God says Jerusalem needs to enlarge her tent, stretch out her curtains, right? lengthen her cords, strengthen her stakes. Why? What is he saying? 
God is saying, you need to put an addition onto your house because of all the kids I'm going to give you, right? You, you need to make your house bigger. I'm going to populate your city so much. Israel, this nation that is powerless in exile in Babylon, like a barren, widowed woman and empty. How can Israel as a nation gain new life? Only by God's power, only by God's promise, only by God's spirit. When God acts, when he saves, he does so by his own power in the face of our powerlessness, by his own spirit, in the face of the weakness of our flesh. If for no other reason, then so it's very clear that we, we have merited nothing, but God's, God's work is all by his grace. And we see this, this principle, right, of, of God's saving power at work in the midst of human weakness, human powerlessness, no more clearly than we see it actually in Jesus. Uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, was not barren. Uh, she had a slightly different impediment to pregnancy. Uh, she was a virgin. And yet God impregnates Mary by his spirit. The empty womb of Mary is given life by the power of the spirit of God. That's the beginning of Jesus' life. We see the same thing at the end of his life, right? Jesus goes to the cross he dies in weakness. He must be laid in a tomb, which shows his human powerlessness at that point. He, he, can't even, he doesn't even have control of his own body, right? Someone else must move it for him. And when all seemed lost, God raised Jesus to life again by his spirit. See, Jesus died in weakness for our sins, but he was raised to life again in the power of the spirit for our justification, that we who believe may find forgiveness and new life in him. Our life as God's children is not found in our performance, but in being united to the risen Jesus. His resurrection life in the Spirit becomes our resurrection life in the Spirit. God's power, the power of the Spirit, works to fulfill God's promises in the midst of human weaknesses. The gospel is not... Do what you can do and God will take care of the rest. The gospel is you, you can do nothing to save yourself. You are empty, barren, dead. But God works by his spirit to work the life of Christ in us. So there are two different ways of being children of Abraham, right? Paul is saying, yes, God gave his promises to Abraham. Uh, so you want to be a child of Abraham. That's important. Uh, but you can be a child of Abraham through hum human effort or... You can be a child of Abraham through promise. Paul has already said the past couple chapters that, that those who believe in Jesus are children of Abraham. Right? So you can be a child of Abraham through your effort, through circumcision, right? through obedience to the law, or you can be a child of Abraham by believing God's promises in Jesus. There are two different ways, right? Two different ways of being religious, right? One way is through your effort, through your performance, what you can accomplish in your own strength, the other way relies on God's promises, what God can do by his spirit. And so today, right, I mean, there are lots of religious people who believe correct doctrine, who go through the right ritual practices, church attendance, Bible reading. They hold to the right morality. But we can do all of that in our own strength to prove ourselves. Right? We can do those things, as Paul says, according to the flesh, according to human ability and strength and power, as if we could somehow gain the right to be sons of Abraham or the right to be the children of God through our human effort. 
As if we might say, God, look at all that I'm doing, right? I believe the right things. I do the right things. You've got to love me, right? You've got to bless me. Or we can be religious. We can be Christians, believing correct doctrine and going through biblical practices and holding biblical morality, right? Doing all the same things, but not trusting in our doing, but trusting in God's promises in Christ, Jesus said at one point, I did not come for the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. See, the point is, if you think you have it all together, if you think you have something to bargain with, if you think that you can earn God's love through your actions, then Jesus says, I didn't come for you. I didn't come for the Ishmaels who, who, who can do it in their own strength. I came for sinners. Jesus came for the empty, the broken, right, the powerless, Not sinners who get their act together, but sinners who believe God's promise. Now that's uh, maybe obviously the the major point here, but there are still three more which follow from this. And so the second, more briefly, is, is about the character of these two religions. Slavery versus freedom. Paul says there are two sons, right? One by a slave woman, one born of a free woman. Paul says uh, these two women should be interpreted allegorically. And that's where Paul begins to lose us. (laughs) Uh, Paul's point is probably something like this. These principles that we see at work in this story, we see at work elsewhere in God's dealings with his people. The same principle of performance versus promise, works versus grace, we see in the covenants. The Sinai covenant, Paul says, was about slavery, just like Hagar, as is the present-day Jerusalem, he says, which is in slavery with her children. Now, now Paul has been arguing for uh, at least a chapter now that the, the Mosaic covenant, right, the covenant God made with his people at Mount Sinai, God's relationship with Israel that began at Sinai, held Israel under slavery as children under age. It's not that the Mosaic Covenant was bad, only that it was preliminary. You know, little kids tend to have lots of rules. Don't touch this. Don't play with that, right? Don't play with knives. Go to bed at this time. And when you grow into maturity, uh, it's not that you can start being careless with knives and you don't need sleep, but you reach a point where you are expected to do the right thing Uh, without a rule applied to it. In fact, maturity can cover life better than a thousand written rules, right? Because uh, there's always a situation that the rules don't cover, but maturity does, hopefully. That's what we all want for our kids, right? We We don't want them unable to act in life without a rule to cover every decision. Maturity is being able to apply sort of these general principles of Scripture, like the Ten Commandments, for example, to the specific details of the moment. And so being underage, being under the Mosaic Covenant, was like slavery, Paul says. And this was particularly true of Jerusalem herself. Why was that true? Well, Paul is looking at his Jewish contemporaries, and he sees two things. Here are people who, who desire to be under the law, and so they, one, look to the law to make them good people, and two, look to the law for their standing with God. For Paul, this is slavery. Why is this slavery? Well, on the one hand, again, being under the 613 commandments of the Old Testament law was like being a kid underage. But even more, if you think that your keeping of that law, your performance, 
determines your standing with the Father. If you think only when I obey God does he love me, if you think you must do your best in order for God to bless you, then you're always going to be wondering whether you've done your best. This kind of Christian life makes one extremely insecure, right? Does God love me? Have I done enough? Have I really done my best? When do I know? When can I stop? A life based on performance leads to a life of slavery, always uncertain whether you have pleased your master, always having to perform again the next day and the next day and the next day. This is the character of performance-based religion, right? It's a slavery which manifests itself in insecurity and drivenness. I've got I've to live up. I've got to please God. Have I done enough? But the one who becomes a son through promise remains a son through promise, right? If you had to do something to become a son, right, then you have to do something to remain a son. But if you became a child of God by grace... You are free, Paul says, free from the Old Testament law as a set of rules to determine your every step. Because, as we've said over the past couple of weeks, it was preparatory to coming to Jesus, to the coming of Jesus. But you're also free from having to perform to be accepted. You're no longer a slave. You're a child of God. And so if you are a Christian already this morning, if you're sitting there as a Christian, are you, are you insecure in that? Are you living like an Ishmael? Are you thinking that you got in because you got something right? You checked the right theological boxes, right? You go, to the, you go through the right religious rituals, right? Church attendance and prayer. You, you have the right biblical morality. Those, are, those things are all good, but they are no basis for a relationship to the Father and will only make you a slave if looked at in that way. Because then you have to keep up appearances, right? You have, to, you have to keep doing those things in order for God to love you. Or you feel like you've fallen out of God's grace because you failed at some point, And you must earn your way back in. But if you know that God makes us children by his grace, that God accepts us because of the cross of Jesus, then you're free to live out your maturity in Christ without fear. Will you screw up in the Christian life? Of course you will. Will you make some wrong decisions along the way? No doubt. But if you did not gain God's love by doing right things, you're not going to lose by your failure, even repeated failure. You are free to live as children of God without the fear of rejection. That brings us to the fruit of these two religions. Verses 28 and 29 say this, Now you brothers, uh, like Isaac, are children of promise, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So there's this story again in the book of Genesis about Ishmael laughing at or mocking Isaac. And uh, the text actually doesn't tell us much more than that. Uh, But Jewish rabbis throughout history have expanded on it a great deal. Why was he mocking Isaac? What was the tension in their relationship? And the idea is something like this, right? In, in that culture, uh, the oldest son received a double portion of the inheritance. But Abraham was going to give his inheritance not to Ishmael, but to Isaac, even though I, Ishmael was the firstborn. How angering would it be to realize that y- your younger brother is going to receive as much, if not more, than you? 
You're the firstborn, right? You should receive the inheritance. You have the qualifications, not him. Notice how angry the, the older brother gets in the parable of the prodigal son. You know that parable? He, he says to his father, basically, I've slaved away for you, but you bless him? You lavish your love on him? But he doesn't deserve it. I do. To the one who is born according to the flesh always persecutes the one born according to the spirit. Why? Right? Why do Ishmael's perse persecute Isaac's? Because Ishmael's are those, within the, the way Paul is telling the story, Ishmael's are those who have earned their way in, or at least think they've earned their way in. And how dare you think God will love you if you haven't jumped through all the hoops that I have? Jesus said to the religious leaders in his day, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God before you. How do you think that made the religious leaders of his day feel? Well, interestingly, if you keep reading the story, the text tells us, right, uh, they, they wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted him dead for saying those kinds of things. How dare you say prostitutes get into the kingdom of God before us, right? We keep all the rules. We do all the right things. There's no law on the books that we have not followed to the very letter. See, if your religion is based on your performance on being religious then not only will you be a slave, but you will resent anyone who claims God's love but doesn't make a pretense of having it all together. Right? How dare you think God would love you? I've worked hard to get here. And so if you think having the right theology makes you right with God, you will li likely look down on those with inferior theology. If you think performing the right religious rituals makes you in you will tend to look down on those who aren't as punctilious as you. It's a great word, punctilious, right? But uh, those, who, those who aren't as uh, methodical, right? those who don't follow all the, the jots and the tittles. If you think God loves those who are moral like you, you will tend to look down on those who morals, whose moral standards don't live up to your own. This is one of the, the ways to know when you're sliding into Ishmaelian living, right? Look at the people you condemn. When you condemn others, when you are angry with others, when you despise others, you are likely claiming something about yourself. You are finding your identity in your position, in your activity, in your beliefs, in your morality, rather than in God's promise in Jesus. You are saying, I have this together and you don't. See, the fruit of performance-based religion is oppression, right? Looking down on those around you. We're going to see in the coming weeks, we're not going to talk about it much here, but we'll see in the coming weeks in Galatians, that the fruit of, of the promise is love. You know, I, I may be working harder than anybody, as Paul definitely was, but I don't need to look down on you because my identity is not in my performance. So I'm free to love you. We'll pick that up in, in uh, the weeks to come. But for now, let's move to the last point, which is the end of these two religions. In, in light of Ishmael's mocking Isaac in Genesis 21, what happens? Well, verse 30, Paul tells us in verse 30, But what does the scripture say? 
cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. And uh, here's the point, right? There are two different sons of Abraham, two different ways of being a child of Abraham. Uh, There is Ishmael, the son by human effort, the son of a slave, and there's Isaac, the son of the promise, born by the Spirit. And in the Christian life, this relates to either striving to be right with God by your own effort or knowing that you are right with God on account of his promise in Christ, being born anew by the Spirit, not by your own actions. And Paul is saying the inheritance does not come to the one who works. The inheritance comes to the one who receives the promise. The one who relies on human effort will be cast out, he says. And the call of the gospel is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not have all your doctrine right and you will be saved. Not go to church every week and you will be saved. Not make all the right moral choices and you will be saved. But believe in Jesus Rest in God's promises, which have been fulfilled in Christ. Should we strive for those other things? Yes, of course we should. But not because we think because of those things, God will save us. Who receives the inheritance? Not the one who works, but the one who is born according to God's promise. Who receives God's blessing? Right? Who will receive eternity with the Father in the new creation? Who will receive God as their God? Not the one who works, but the one who receives the promise in Christ. Now, I, I want to uh, apply this just in, in one particular way this morning. Um, I want to think about children who grew up in the church. Uh, there, there's a lot I'd like to say about this, but won't be able to. Um, but let me say just this. Uh, thinking about Ishmael's and Isaac's, uh, it's not enough to be born in the church. Uh, It's not even enough to be baptized in the church. The Old Testament equivalent of baptism is circumcision. Ishmael was circumcised the same day Abraham was. In fact, Ishmael was circumcised when he was 13 years old. Isaac was circumcised when he was eight days old. And so it's not enough to be baptized. It's not enough to, it doesn't even help to be baptized when you're older as opposed to an infant. As you probably know, right, we're a Presbyterian church, so we baptize infants uh, here at All Souls because we believe that children are under the authority of their parents. And so they're members of God's covenant family. But baptism does not automatically, right, change your heart. It is a confirmation of God's promise to save those who believe. It is God's signature, God's oath to his people. What that means is being born into the church is not enough. Being baptized is not enough. Again, what I mean by not enough is not that you need to add something to that per se, but that there are two different ways of thinking about those things. You know, some kids grow up in the church and they think because of that, they they will receive God's inheritance, right? Simply because they grew up in the church. Uh, They think God loves them simply because they grew up in the church. They think that they are somehow better than non-Christians simply because they grew up in the church or because they've been baptized. And if you see growing up in the church or receiving baptism as boxes that you can check off, as things that now I'm qualified for God's love, then you are like Ishmael, thinking that you can check off the right boxes and be in with God. 
And like Ishmael, the, the warning of Scripture is, you will be cast out. Whether in this life you end up leaving the church or in the life to come God separates you from the church, you, you will not inherit life with the Father if you are trusting in your religious activities. But if you see growing up in the church as God's blessing to you and baptism as God's oath, a sign of his promise to those who believe, and you respond in faith, trusting in the promises of God, resting not in your own work, not in your own qualifications, but in the work of Jesus, then you too are not a child of the slave woman, but of the free. You too have the hope of the inheritance, dwelling with the Father in the new creation forever. You know, thinking you can earn God's blessing through human effort leads to slavery and insecurity and condemning others, eventually being cast out as those who have rejected grace. Nothing you do can qualify you for grace. Right? Nothing you do can qualify you for the inheritance. Nothing you do can earn God's love. Not good theology, not religious practice, no moral life. Only God's promise in Jesus, the son of Abraham, can make you a son of Abraham, a child of God. Only leaning on the promises of God leads to freedom and love and all the blessings of God being yes for us in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would work in our hearts to give us faith in your promises, that we would trust you, that we would rely on you, that we would rest in you, that we would see Jesus in his work in the cross, in his death and his resurrection, and that we would know that by his life, by his death, by his resurrection, we are forgiven and restored to you, and we are your children. Help us then to live in the freedom of being your children. Help us to live without fear. Help us to live without condemnation of ourselves or others. Help us, Father, to, to serve you with our whole hearts in that freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.